Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Incomparable Christ. All right, so in terms of greatness, I want you to think through this with me, all right? In terms of greatness, out of all the multiplied billions of people who have ever walked this earth, nobody compares to Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the most significant person in all of history. Again, think about this. More words have been written, more songs have been sung, more pictures have been painted, more buildings have been built to honor the Lord Jesus Christ than to honor anybody else who's ever lived. In fact, Christ is so important, what do we do in our world? We divide history by his life. All world history, all historical events fall into one of two categories, either BC, before Christ, or AD, which does not mean after death, but it's a Latin term, anno domini, which means in the year of our Lord. Time Magazine did a survey in an article called Who's Biggest? The 100 Most Significant Figures in History. Take a guess who ranked number one. Go ahead and shout out his name. Jesus. Jesus. And by the way, that's not surprising because there's hundreds of articles and hundreds of surveys that have revealed the same results. Across our world today, even right now, there's two, approximately two billion, with a B, two billion people who recognize and consider that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ is not just a big deal, Christ is the biggest deal. On July 24th, 1969, the Apollo 11 astronauts went to the moon. Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin, and they returned to Earth. They were the first astronauts to ever land on the moon. And because it was such a momentous occasion, President Richard Nixon got on a plane and flew all the way out to the middle of the Pacific Ocean in order to personally welcome home these three men from space. And so after the crew splashed down into the ocean, a helicopter came and picked them up and transferred, transferred them to the USS Hornet where President Richard Nixon was eagerly waiting. And so because NASA in 1969 didn't know maybe these three guys are gonna bring back diseases or moon bugs. They actually quarantined these guys for a number of days, but Richard Nixon was, was able, through a microphone, to be able to talk through the glass to the three men. And so the president was so elated to see these guys. In fact, he was so swept up in the moment, he told them that their eight-day mission, and I quote, President Richard Nixon, that their eight-day mission to the moon was, quote, the greatest week in the history of the world since the creation. How many of you have heard of Billy Graham? Billy Graham heard the comments of the president, and so he had to respectfully correct the president of the United States. And Dr. Graham reminded Nixon of two events in history that were more significant than landing on the moon, namely the birth of Jesus Christ 
and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank God for a man who stands up for the truth and even will correct a president. And so Billy Graham during this time was reported to say this about the whole event. He said, and I quote, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest and the most important event in the history of the world. I love that. I love that because landing on the moon, don't get me wrong, it's important, but comparing the Apollo 11 mission to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is like comparing the light of a candle to the light of the noonday blazing sun. Ladies and gentlemen, it pales in comparison. And you need to know that Neil Armstrong, the first man that walked on the moon, would absolutely agree with Billy Graham's statement. Neil Armstrong went to Jerusalem in 1994 and he traveled to a place called the Southern Steps. I am so excited because I will be there next month. And so Neil Armstrong went to the Southern Steps. If you don't know what that is, the Southern Steps are located at the south end of the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem and they lead up to the Huldah Gates. Neil Armstrong in 1994 was there and he was asking his tour guide if Jesus would have ever walked anywhere in this area. And his tour guide, an Israeli archeologist named Mir Bendov, told Neil Armstrong that Jesus would have gone to the temple many times in his life, and many times he would have used the southern steps uh, to, to enter into the temple. And not only that, Mr. Armstrong, but the steps that you're standing on right now are the original steps that Jesus walked on 2,000 years ago. It's true, it's a fact. Some of the steps have been filled in with more recent concrete, but sure enough, the stones, many of the stones from 2,000 years ago are still there today. And Neil Armstrong was elated. He was so happy. Listen to this, the same man who made the famous statement, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind when he stepped out of the space module onto the surface of the moon, that same man said on that day in 1994 from the Southern Steps that he was more excited about walking where Jesus walked than he was about walking on the moon. Why is Jesus so significant? Why is Jesus so influential? Today I'm gonna share with you three reasons why why Jesus is the incomparable Christ. And if you're taking notes, the first reason why nobody compares to Jesus Christ is, number one, his incarnation. His incarnation. Ladies and gentlemen, the word incarnation literally means the act of being made flesh. That's what the word means. The act of being made flesh. And the apostle John, who walked around and ministered with Jesus for the better part of three years, in the opening words of his gospel said this, here's your Bible verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, help me out with the next two words, was God. By the way, not little g, big G, the God. And here's the incarnation, the Word became flesh. He became a human being. 
with skin, blood, and bones, just like you and me, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son, the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so if you know your Bibles, you know that in the context of John chapter one, the word is Jesus Christ. And so let's break it down. In the beginning, what's that mean? What's the beginning? At the creation of the material universe. In the beginning was the word. You see that? So if you're somehow able in your mind to go all the way back to the beginning, the, the, the creation of the material universe, the next three words is, was the word. In other words, the word was already in existence before the, the, the creation of the material universe. What does this mean? This means that the word is not temporal. The word was not created. The word who was God is eternal. And the word is who? Shout out his name. Jesus. This is the true Jesus of the Bible. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God, ladies and gentlemen, the central truth that separates Christianity from all other religions, the central truth that separates Christianity from all of the cults is this, the word was and is God. Jesus was and is God. And so you say, well, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When did God become flesh? He became flesh in the first century AD. 2,000 years ago, a young Jewish virgin named Mary miraculously gave birth to a child in a barn in Bethlehem and wrapped that child in swaddling cloths and laid him in a box in a cattle feeding trough. Can you imagine the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords had such a humble beginning because Joseph and Mary were so poor and so who was this child? One of his titles, according to Isaiah and Matthew, is he is Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And so when considering the incarnation, it's important to understand this truth right here. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so the Word, the eternal Son of God, comes out of eternity, and what does he do? He adds a human nature to his already eternal divine nature. He wraps himself in blood and bones, blood and bones just like you and I have. He's born of a virgin, and he dwells among us. And so Jesus forever has two separate natures, two distinct natures in one person. A divine nature and a human nature. Now, let me just make sure I emphasize something. You know, we can disagree and theologians and pastors can disagree about the finer points of theology, but on this topic right here, who do you believe Jesus is? You need to get this right. Because if you don't get this right, you get everything wrong. 
And so I've told my church family before, if you ever move away from poor St. Lucie and find yourself in another city and you go to another church and the pastor stands up like I'm standing up and he disagrees with that statement, what's the one word, church family? What do you do? You run. You run. Because if you get this wrong, you get everything wrong. And so one person, two distinct natures, divine nature, human nature, and so in his divine nature, Jesus displayed that divine nature, how? By doing things like turning water into wine, like multiplying five loaves of bread and two fish and feeding 5,000 men, like standing up in a rocking boat on the turbulent sea of Galilee as the wind is blowing and the rain's coming down and he stands up and he says, peace, be still. And at one second, the, the turbulent sea of Galilee becomes the sea of glass, just like that. Only God can do that. He showed his divine nature when he walked on the water, when he gave sight to the blind. Who does that? When he raised dead people from the grave and he displayed his human nature. When he got hungry, he got thirsty and tired and sad and lonely and he bled and he suffered and he died. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And of course, how many of you guys know there's always skeptics? There's always hard-hearted skeptics. And they'll make statements like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, really? If Jesus never claimed to be God, then why did he, in John chapter eight, tell the religious leaders this? Why did he say, if you're taking notes, we're gonna go to the next screen. He said, truly, truly. Now, he's trying to get your attention here because he just said the word truly twice. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what's the next two words? Does that ring a bell with anybody? What is the name that Almighty God gave himself to Moses 1,500 years B.C.? Moses says, God, who would I tell the Israelites has sent me? And from the burning bush, I am that I am. And Jesus uses the same title for himself. You say, well, was he really declaring himself to be God? You know, did the Jews understand that? Yes, the Jews understood it. In the very next verse, they pick up rocks to stone him for blasphemy. Please, get this. Don't put Jesus on the back burner of your life. Listen this morning on this Easter Sunday. Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man. He knew that, and he said that. So either he's, as C.S. Lewis said, a liar a lunatic, or he's Lord. And the decision that you make about who Jesus is will determine where you spend all of eternity. People who say, oh, he didn't claim to be God, really? Then why did he say this? Why did he say, I and the Father are one? Why did he say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father? Jesus knew he was God, and he said so. The second reason why nobody can be compared to Jesus Christ, not just his incarnation, but his perfect life and death. Jesus Christ, again, think through this with me. He taught perfect messages. He performed perfect miracles. He lived a perfectly moral life, never sinned one time, and he died a perfect death. Jesus Christ taught perfect messages. You ever heard the Sermon on the Mount? 
Ever heard of the Beatitudes? Ever heard of the Upper Room Discourse? Ever heard of the Olivet Discourse? Ever heard of all the parables that Jesus taught about life, suffering, death, eternity? Listen, all of those teachings were perfect. You can walk into Barnes and Noble and what will you be confronted with? You'll be confronted with thousands of books that are imperfect. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing good there. There's some good stuff in, in bookstores, but what I'm trying to tell you is that if you're having a difficult time this morning, if you're struggling, guess what? You can turn to the pages of the Gospels and you can read perfect teachings that will help you in your life. Go to the red letters, but don't stop there. Don't just read the red letters, then read the whole book because God says, it's all inspired from Genesis to Revelation. Don't ignore this book. And I tell you, your flesh will fight against you reading this book. And the enemy will fight against you reading this book. And the world will mock this book and say it's full of errors. Well, guess what? It's the perfect revelation of God in the original manuscripts. And I dare you to read it, because if you begin to read it, guess what might happen? As Andrew said a little while ago, God will give you hope for tomorrow. Perfect messages, perfect miracles, historically recorded. He gave the blind sight. He gave the deaf the ability to hear. He gave crippled people the ability to walk. He gave lepers clean skin like the bottom of a baby. He raised dead people from the grave. Perfect messages, perfect miracles, a perfect life. He never sinned one time. Now the Bible says that he grew up um, in, a, in a humble home in Nazareth and he had four little half brothers. And so can you imagine being one of those four little half brothers growing up in the home with a brother, a big brother who's perfect. He never does anything wrong. He always makes the right decision. He always pleases mom and dad. He is their favorite. No one can argue that. <laughs> and they grow up not liking Jesus. In fact, later on, his bone half-brothers said he was crazy. And guess what? They were unbelievers until the resurrected Christ revealed himself to them. And so perfect messages, perfect miracles, perfect life, perfect death. Now, if you haven't been thinking about what I've been saying with great detailed, you know, really honing in, right now is when you've gotta really hone in, right here and right now, because this is what the Bible calls the gospel. Speaking of his perfect death, the apostle Peter wrote this, for you know that God paid a ransom to, what's the next two words? Save you. Save you. Now, some of you may be here this morning and it's never crossed your mind that you need to get saved. You thought that's just what Baptist preachers will say. Guess what? The Baptist preachers and all evangelical preachers get that phrase straight from the word of God. We all need to be saved. You may say, saved from what? From our sins, from death, from hell, from Satan, from demons. We all need to be saved, and guess what? Your works cannot save you. But God so loved the world, what did he do? He paid a ransom. 
to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid, this ransom was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was paid with the precious blood of Christ. Please say blood of Christ. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God. There is an eternal decree from the heart of God to man. What we need to understand is that God is not just a God of love. He absolutely is a God of love, but just as much as God is a God of love, he is a God of holiness and justice, and he is a judge. And if sin is committed in his universe, something's gotta die. If sin has been committed in God's world, somebody or something has to die. The wages of sin is what? Death, Death Romans 6, 23. That is God's eternal decree. And if you're here today and you have sinned, and I know I have sinned, then we absolutely deserve just judgment from God. Now the way they dealt with the sin problem in the Old Testament was through animal sacrifices. And so they would take a lamb, one year old, without blemish and without spot, they'd slit his throat, and they would sacrifice the lamb to God in, in accordance with the dictates of the law of Moses. But there was a problem. Those animal sacrifices could only cover sin. They could not take away sin. The animal sacrifices in the Old Testament foreshadowed, look, everybody look at me, all those animal sacrifices Many of those animal sacrifices, what did they do? They foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice in the New Testament of the Lamb of God. And God paid a ransom for our sins, your sins and mine, with the, the, the blood, the precious blood of his, of his one and only son. And that's why John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who, what's the next two words? takes away the sin of the world. Jesus did what the animal sacrifices could never do. All they could do was temporarily cover sin under the old covenant, but Jesus comes and establishes a new covenant and he pays the ultimate sacrifice and his blood doesn't just cover, his blood washes away all of our sins, past, present, future. That's good news, ladies and gentlemen. That's great news. And so after making that perfect sacrifice for us, Jesus did something to prove that it was efficacious or effective. And so if you're taking notes, the third reason why Jesus is incomparable, why nobody compares to Jesus, is not just his incarnation, not just his perfect life and death, but his bodily resurrection. And I emphasize bodily because the cults say, no, 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 no. His body stayed in a grave. And yeah, of course, Jesus' spirit went to heaven. He was a good man. That's a lie from the pit of hell, and it smells like smoke. He didn't just die spiritually. I'm sorry, he did not just rise spiritually. He rose in body and spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sharing Orthodox Christianity with you right now. I'm sharing what the Bible teaches straight from the heart of God, that the same body that expired on the cross is the same body that walked victoriously out of the grave. And he went, he went to the disciples and he said, look, look at the holes in my hands. 
Thomas, stop doubting. Put your hand in my side. It's me. It's the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Around AD 55, the apostle Paul wrote the first Christian creed. This, this predates the Nicene Creed. And the apostle Paul said this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was, happy Easter, y'all. <laughs> Raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, before we go any further, let me just say, this was written around A.D. 55. This is just 20 to 25 years after the death of Jesus. In other words, the reason I say that to you is because people will say Christianity is a legend. The resurrection is a myth, it's a legend. No, 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 false, sorry. It takes many, 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 many years for legends to develop. This is just 20 to 25 years after Jesus died. Think about 9-11. 9-11 occurred, what, 18 years ago. It's a fact of history. We know it's a fact of history. Jesus dies, and then 20 to 25 years ago, someone who used to imprison Christians and persecute Christians has a divine encounter with Jesus, and now all of a sudden he writes the first Christian creed, and he says, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And you might say, well, how do you know the fanatic didn't just lie? How do you know that's just not him writing and lying? Well, here's why. Because Paul went on and then in the next verse and said that Jesus appeared. Please say the words, he appeared. He appeared. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom... Please focus on this. Most of whom are still alive. One day I want to preach a sermon called Still Alive in AD 55. <laughs> Why? Because most of those 500, over 250 people were alive in AD 55. Though some had fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, I was bullheaded. Can anybody relate? He appeared also to me. And so how can we be sure that Jesus rose from the dead? Here's how. He appeared. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared to over 500 people. Over, over 500. And, and listen, the majority of them are still alive in AD 55. What does that mean? That means if you're a skeptic in the first century, you can go knock on the door of over 250 people and look them in the eye and say, did you really see the risen Christ? And over 250 people will say, yes, I saw Jesus alive from the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, there are people on death row right now because of the witness, eyewitness testimony of one person. We have the eyewitness testimony of over 500 people. The resurrection is not a myth, it's not a legend. It is a fact of history and the most significant event that has ever occurred in all of world history. It's a fact. Stop 
doubting and start trusting. Your life's falling apart. You can't sleep at night. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to handle the problems. Guess what? In and of ourselves, we can't handle our problems. That's why God came. He loves us. And Jesus said, if you'll accept me in your life, I'll not only give you eternal life forever, I'll give you abundant life in the here and now. I'll be with you through all the heartache and storms of life. Embrace Jesus. Stop putting him on the back burner. Bring him into the center of your life and let him be your everything. And I guarantee you, he will rock your world. Here's the good news. Because Christ lives beyond the grave, those who have received him will also live beyond the grave. That's the sure hope we have today. Check out what John the Apostle wrote in John 1, 11, and 12. He said, he, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people, Israel, did not receive him. Now, that, that does not say that all Jews reject Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth. Thousands and thousands of Jews in the first century received Jesus, but the Sanhedrin, the rulers of Israel of the day, rejected him. And most Jews, sadly, in the first century, rejected him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to, what's the word? All, Jews or Gentiles. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, so much misunderstanding about the word believe, because we, Many of us think believe means intellectual assent. Yeah, I believe a guy named Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. I mean, what is it? I think 15 to 20 secular references about Jesus outside of the Bible. Yes, of course, it's a slam dunk. The historical Jesus lived. Well, guess what? Just because you give intellectual assent to that doesn't make you, as the last three words say, a child of God. What is believing? Believing is not intellectual assent. Believing is receiving. Brother Glenn, come on up for just a second. And so this is my winter coat that I grabbed out of the closet. I had to wipe it off because we live in Florida and I think I wear it once a year. And nonetheless, I want you to imagine, even though it's hard to do because we live in Florida, but imagine that it's five degrees outside right now. And imagine if Glenn and I walk outside, it's five degrees, imagine if I have a full coat on and I have this coat in my hand, but all Glenn has is his shirt and he's cold. And so Glenn, I have a question for you. Do you believe this coat exists? Yes. Do you believe this coat can make you warm? Yes. Okay, question church family. Just because Glenn believes this coat exists and the coat can make him warm, is it making him warm right now? No, what does Glenn have to do? Well, I offer it, what does he have to do? He has to receive it. And when he receives it and he puts it on, guess what, now it'll keep him warm. Ladies and gentlemen, God's one and only son came to the earth. He died on a cross, he rose again the third day and he says, as many as receive me, I will make them children of God.
And so it's not intellectual assent, you must personally receive. And when you put on the jacket of Christ, God clothes you in Christ's righteousness. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. All he can see is the righteousness of his son. And instead of getting judged, you get a hug because you're a child of God. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Glenn. Make sure you give me my coat back. <laughs> Which, by the way, God will never do that. He'll never take away your salvation. I'm gonna ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. Jesus loves you. He came for you. If you were the only person who ever lived, he still would have come for you and he would have sacrificed himself for you. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The Bible says that God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. Jesus paid the ransom for your sins. It's not about trying, it's about trusting. Your good works cannot save you. Your good works, my good works, are like filthy rags. We need Christ, we need forgiveness. We need to receive Christ. If you're here today and you'd like to receive Jesus as your savior, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. God sees your heart, God hears your heart. And so you can say this prayer to him. Don't repeat words after a pastor thinking magical words save you. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'll lead you in a prayer, but it needs to be your prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you believe that he is the Son of God and you're willing the best way you know how to turn from your sins and turn to him alone and trust him today, just say this to Jesus. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I know I deserve judgment but I believe you were judged for me. I believe you died for my sins. And I believe you rose again. And so right here and now, I open my heart and I ask you to come in. Forgive my sins. I receive you as my savior and the boss of my life. Thank you for paying for my sins. And thank you for rising again. And it's in your name I pray, amen, amen. If everybody could look at me, if you're here today and you just prayed that prayer to receive Jesus as your savior, you need to know that uh, God does not call secret disciples. And he wants us to publicly affirm our faith in Christ. And so if you're here today and you just prayed to receive Christ, I'm gonna ask you to do something bold. I'm gonna ask you just for a moment to just stand to your feet so we can encourage you and we can applaud you. Just stand to your feet, whoever you are. Just, just stand and remain standing, whoever you are. Stand and remain standing all over the room.
Anybody else? I just prayed to receive Christ. Just stand, stand at your feet, whoever you are. All of you in the back. God bless you guys. If you could just remain standing for just a second, that's awesome. That's awesome. You know, man, he deserves our honor and our praise, and he deserves our public affirmation of his lordship. Absolutely. So, so the ushers are gonna, are gonna give you guys a, a free Bible from our church to you. And I wanna encourage you to read it every day. Start in the Gospel of John. Just read a chapter a day, whether you feel like it or not. And then in the Bible is this baptism card. Now, now ladies and gentlemen, this is where a lot of preachers mess up. They don't say anything about baptism. Please hear me, baptism does not save you. But baptism is a commandment of Jesus that if you choose to follow me, you need to be baptized. We're gonna have a baptism in a couple weeks, and so I encourage those of you who receive Christ to follow the Lord and believers' baptism. And so as these people sit down, can our church family just encourage them one more time as you guys sit down to your feet. I just wanna say for all of you who stood and maybe some of you who didn't stand, that we, we love you. We're here every week. We would love to be able to be your church family and to minister to you and to be there for you in the difficult times and the good times.